The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I may confuse you just a little bit this morning because um, I'm not going to preach from Matthew, which is the regular series, but what I decided that I would do was take a sermon from our evening service, and uh, we've been studying the doctrine of the church, and today I want to talk to you of something about the church, and this will actually be the next to the last message that we have in the Sunday night series on the church. And when you come back tonight, I'll have that last message, which will be on the preservation of our church. But I felt like there were some things uh, to be said in this message that would benefit the wider audience that doesn't come to services on Sunday night. I promise I will return to Matthew next week, and we're ready to start chapter 26. But I wanted to preach this next to the last message on the church. Uh, It's been a, a long journey through that series, and... Uh, When I originally started, as those of you on Sunday nights know, I had only intended that we would go just a few weeks. Uh, It was a summer replacement series, actually, to get us into something else at the beginning of the fall. But now we've spent over a year teaching in that series. And I think it's been good for us. And if I'd known how long that it was going to take before I started, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I'd have done it just like I did. So even though we do have the morning crowd here today, and uh, some of you haven't heard the series of messages, I I don't think this one's going to be hard for you to follow. I want to speak to you today on the necessity of church membership. Uh, The church is God's plan for the world in this present age. The church is the organization that God blesses. This is the place where God carries out his work. And so it's very important for us to know as much as we possibly can about God's church. And thus we've had these 45, 46 messages that precede this one speaking on the doctrine of the church because there is so much importance to God's church. Now I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we read some very critical information about the church. And here Paul is writing to Timothy, and he starts at, uh, or he says this in verse number 14. He says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now Paul thought that he might be delayed in reaching Ephesus. Timothy had become the pastor of the church there, and he thought that he ought to make him aware of how the affairs of the church should be conducted while he was gone. And this is one thing you have to remember about the Apostle Paul. He had been called to be a missionary to the Gentiles, and as such, he was, you might say, a a bishop, or he was a leader. He was an apostle over all of these Gentile churches. And he was very concerned about how the church affairs would be conducted when he was away, and he couldn't be among the people. Now, I'm very sure that Paul had confidence in Timothy. He'd expressed that 
time, many times before. But here he repeats the gravity of the seriousness of God's church and just how important it is to guard the church and not let the work of the church suffer while he was away. Now, in the past few weeks, I've been away on vacation, and when I leave, I know that our church is in capable hands. And it's really a blessing to me to have the confidence that we have men in our church that can stand up here and bring a message. And I know that the, the work of the church is not going to suffer in my absence, but I still have this sense that what I need to do as the pastor of the church is to continually encourage you to work for the Lord, to be in your place, to take your responsibility as God's people in God's church in the times that I am away. Now, here in verse number 15, Paul said, I want you to know how to behave yourself in the house of God. And he wasn't so much there talking about fighting with each other or behavioral things that we do in the church, like, like whispering while the preacher is preaching. And there are definitely some of you that need to learn that lesson and about that behavior. But the idea that he has behind what he's writing here is the devotion that we as God's people are to have to God's church. And I'm sure that he does have some meaning in this about being reverent and about conducting ourselves with the right decorum according to the sanctity of our surroundings. But I believe that the main purpose that he has here is to consider the devotion to the work. And that's because as we read through the New Testament, we find so much emphasis on Christ's sacrifice and what Christ did in dying for his church. But before I leave that first thought, I do want to say that we need to have some more reverence for what we do here. This building itself is not the church, but it's the place where we do most of our work. This is the place that God has given us. This is not a playhouse for us. This is not a, a place where to be raucous and callous about what we say and do here. No, there ought to be some dignity and respect for the surroundings that we're in. And then secondly, about behavior, the church is not a place for bickering. Uh, Christians shouldn't fight with anybody anywhere, but especially not in God's house. And, and here again, I'm not speaking about the building itself. I'm talking about the people who are the church. That there ought not to be that arguing and divisions that are among us. And then I want to say this as well. That when we are assembled, I think that we ought to be a little bit more focused at times than we actually are. This is not a place or a time to get the scores of the football games on your cell phones while I'm preaching. Now, I know that there are games on Sunday morning and Sunday night, and uh, the Giants play tonight too, I think. Uh, I'm going to be competing with them. And so uh, I, I, I think we ought to be careful about things like that. I think we should put some of those things out of our minds so that you don't sneak a peek at the scores during the sermon. Now, the conversations when we come into the church really ought to be more about the Lord than they are about the NBA or the NFL. There was a, a lady who came to visit our church a few years ago, and uh, when she came in, she talked to me, and she told me that she was quite surprised to hear some of the conversations that were taking place in the, in the uh, foyer out there before she came into the church. And she said to me, I don't think that your church is a very spiritual place. And you know what she was referring to? Every conversation that she heard out there was about a football game about sports or something that was going on and nothing being said about the Lord. And at first that made me angry. Well, I don't get angry, 
But I was a little bit upset about that, and, but I didn't really have any basis to refute what she said. So I think that we ought to be a little bit more careful about this, that our thoughts need to be on what we're doing here in God's work, and we ought to be co come in as spiritual people. There's nothing wrong with talking about ball games. I'm not saying that. But let's get our focus right when we come into the church. Let's be prepared to worship the Lord when we come in here. Now, those are just some extra observations. Those are free to you. They're not a part of the sermon today. But I don't think the Apostle Paul would be too unhappy that I included those kinds of comments with my explanation of what he says in verse number 15. And then, by the way, also, before I leave those, those observations, I do know that there are some churches that call off church for the Super Bowl. And on Super Bowl Sunday, they may have a Sunday night fellowship where they have a Super Bowl party. That's not likely to happen anytime soon here. So let's look at this passage, and I believe that Paul's main thrust in the teaching here is that Timothy must understand the right attitude about the Lord's church, that the church occupies a very special position in what we call God's economy for the world. The, world is, uh, the church is a very special place, and, and, and the Bible puts much emphasis on being a part of the Lord's church. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Now, since the church is beyond special, there are some truths that can be brought out about why it's so important for us to be members of the church. Now, those of you that come to Sunday night services, some of the things that we've talked about in this series on the church will float to the top during this message, and uh, you'll probably recognize some things that I have to say here. But I do want you to understand how significant that the church is in the life of a Christian. Now, it's not uncommon for people to ask questions about this, and they may say something like this. I know that, it's, that you say that it's important to be a member of the church, but the church membership has nothing at all to do with my salvation. I know that I'm saved, and the Bible does not say that I have to be a member of any particular church that's not necessary for my salvation, so why do I need to be a member of your church or of any church? And I, I agree with that basic premise. The Apostle Paul and Silas were asked by the Philippian jailer, and our, and our choir was singing about, uh, about this a little while ago, and, and, and that Philippian jailer asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't say, well, here's what you need to do. You need to clean up your life. And you need to act a little bit better than you do. You need to start doing some good things, and you need to keep the commandments. And please don't forget, you need to join the Berean Baptist Church. No, if salvation is not dependent upon being a member of the church, then why is it so important? Well, we need to know the answer to that question. And I think the Bible does give us several answers to it. And to get our answers, the first thing that we have to do, we must understand the nature of the church. The nature of it. Now, this takes us back to the beginning of our series over a year ago. And in lesson number two, we talked about this subject, the nature of the church. That the church is a body. The church is a group of people that have been called out, that they are assembled together to do the Lord's work. The church is not an individual. Now, perhaps the greatest the most harmful thing that's ever been taught in Christianity is that each individual is the church. 
and that we, we belong to this big, mystical, universal, invisible body that's called the church, but this is a place that can never actually assemble. That's not the way that the word church is used in the New Testament. The church is in an assembly. It's a people, a group of people that are born again believers and they come together, they have covenant together, and they do God's work. And the overwhelming majority of the places in the New Testament where the word church is used, it always refers to a local assembly of people, a group of people that have been assembled in a particular place. And even in those places where the word translated as church has reference to the institution of the church, we really can't find any reason to alter the original Greek meaning of this word. A universal body is not meant by that word. It's a local, visible, assembled body. And so the word carries with it the idea of an assembly. Now, when the King James translators translated the word for church, there were times when they just translated the word as assembly. And that's because those times had no reference to the church. But it retained that meaning that it's an assembly of people. People have come together, and that's what church means. So the church is a, a body. It's also a body. And it can't be a body if it's disjointed. And neither is this body invisible. If it's invisible, it's no longer a body, is it? It would be a spirit. And in no place in the Word of God do we ever find that the church is referred to as a spirit. No, the church is a visible, identifiable assembly, and we're not the church until we assemble as God's people. And then together, we are identified as God's people. Now, this is consistent in Scripture about how God identifies. God called out Noah and identified him and separated him. God called out Abraham and separated him. And God called out Jacob and separated him. And then he took his 12 sons and called out Israel and called them Israel, his chosen nation. And he separated them and he identified himself with a particular people. And God has done the same thing with the church in the New Testament era. That the church in this new dispensation is God's people called out and continued to be identified as a very special body that is his church. And so in the New Testament, the church is the way that you actually identify with Christ. Now just as God has called out and identified his people since the beginning of time, he has now called out this body to be his church. Now with so many lessons that we find in scripture about the church and so much said about the church in the New Testament and then about Christ's work and his supreme love for the church, we can't afford to ignore it. We can't afford to say, it's just not important in my life. If you're going to follow Christ, you have to have regard for the Lord's church. And so we never want to use this excuse. Well, I don't need to be a member of a church because I'm a member of this big, mystical, invisible body that's called God's church. And so I don't need to join a particular congregation. You're never going to find that idea in the New Testament. Now, secondly, we would note that there is no other plan in the New Testament for the work of Christ to be done. So we must understand the work of the church. There are two outstanding statements that Paul makes in 1 Timothy 3.15. The first one he makes is, it is the church of the living God. 
But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, can you imagine that there would be a Christian today who would say, I have no interest in the church of the living God? I don't think that I need to be a member of the church of the living God. Now, you think about that the next time that you're too tired to come to church on Sunday morning or you don't want to get up for Sunday school. Think about that when you're habitually late for the start of services. This is the church of the living God. How much do you, do, do you recognize, how do you behave yourself in the church of the living God? How much respect do you actually have for the church of the living God? You think about Paul's statement. He wanted them to consider this. It is the church of the living God. Now that's a very important statement. But that's not really the one that I want to focus on. It's the second statement where we're going to look more closely. And that is, it is the pillar and ground of the truth. How thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It is the church that upholds truth. Now, the church didn't invent truth. The church doesn't make up truth. The church is the pillar and ground of it. It's the foundation on which it stands. Now, of course, you must understand that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ himself, and the church is built upon him, and the church becomes the support system for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, truth and the defense of truth has been committed to God's church. And the church is exclusive in that. There, there isn't any other entity that you'll find in the New Testament that's been given the responsibility of God's truth. And if you want to know why that I said that I, what I said a moment ago about not coming into the pulpit half prepared, it's for this reason. We are upholders of God's truth, and we can't, we can't put the truth aside. We cannot talk about, stop talking about the truth. We don't have the option of that. This is the church of the living God. This is a pillar and ground of the truth. And so we must come, uh, come here and uphold what God's Word says. We have to preach from God's Word. Now, can you imagine the, the danger that truth would encounter if every individual was the foundation of truth? Now think about it a moment. If you're the Lone Ranger Christian who decides you don't need to have anything to do with the church and, and you've just decided that, that you don't need to be a member, are you comfortable with the responsibility of being the pillar and the ground of the eternal truths of God's Word? Are you ready to accept account, uh, the, the responsibility and to be held accountable for upholding God's truth? Now if individually we are the interpreters of the word, then the truth is going to be open to many strange interpretations. And I'm not telling you that you can't study the Bible because you can. You can understand the Bible for yourself. Roman Catholicism taught for centuries that individuals can't understand the Bible. You have to have a priest to interpret the Bible for you. I'm not saying that. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to show you that God does speak in a very special way through his church. And this passage has to do with the church itself, the collected body of Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and, and beginning at verse number 9. 
For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and the importance of this passage, what I wanted you to see here, is the word foundation. He is speaking to the church assembled. This is a letter to the church, not to individual Christians. Now, go down to verse number 16. He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him will God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, those of you that are Bible students, most of you are familiar that Paul makes a similar statement in chapter 6. And there, Paul is talking about individual Christians. And he said in verse number 19 of that chapter that your body, he said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you can tell by the context in that passage that he is speaking to the individual. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in the third chapter, he's not talking about the individual. He's speaking of the assembled church. This is the collected body. And to the church, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so when we come together as God's people and we meet here, the Spirit of God is with us in a very special way. And it's different from the indwelling of the Spirit in the individual Christian. And so as we study the Word of God together, the Holy Spirit is here guiding us in that. And through that, the whole church is strengthened. The church is edified. The foundation for the truth, the pillar and the ground, actually becomes fortified against the attacks of the enemy. And so we are taught, what we are taught continually adds to that strength of the foundation. And you can be sure of this, where you find a weak church, you find one that has neglected the Word of God. And that's why we have such weak churches in America today. Nobody is preaching the Word of God. Now, the church has special authority that nobody else has to do Christ's work. So what is that work? Well, let's expand on that just a little bit. What is the work of the church? Well, first, the work of the church is teaching. Christ has entrusted teaching to His church. 1 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. The disciples met together for teaching. This morning we're here for teaching. On the other side of this wall behind me, there are children over there, and they have teachers under the authority of the church, and they have a program for teaching so they can understand the things of Christ. Whenever I stand in this pulpit preaching, or I'm on the floor in front of the fundamentals class, or here on Sunday in the Sunday morning forum, I am teaching you about God, the Word of God. And why do I do that? Why is the Word of God so important? Well, the Word of God is important because that is the foundation of your faith. 
Your, the Word is the foundation of faith. As the old hymn says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. And so our faith comes from the Word. That's why we can't ignore it. The Word is truth, and the truth anchors you solidly. And this is why I don't get up and preach to you from popular books. I'm not going to read to you today from the purpose-driven church. I'm not going to read to you from the newspaper, from the press Democrat, and try to make points about political things and talk about those kinds of things. I'm going to preach the Word of God because that's what upholds your faith. And if you don't hear the Word of God, you're going to be weak Christians. And if you go to a church where they don't preach the Word of God, you're going to be a weak Christian. You're not going to grow in the faith. Now let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. And we see the purpose clearly demonstrated here by Paul. As he says, God has gifted, he's called out special people in the church for the purpose of teaching. Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse number 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now you should be starting to get a feeling about how important God's Word is and the teaching of it. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in, in, into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now those are some power-packed verses that we could spend a lot of time explaining. The word strengthens, the word unifies us in the faith, the word causes us to grow in our sanctification, the word is what drops an anchor in a stormy sea and keeps you from being dashed to pieces on the rocks of false doctrine. Now what your church does, the importance of your church, is that it supplies the teaching of the word. And it does that in different ways, but primarily it does it through the pulpit ministry. This is the most important thing of what goes on in the church is what I'm doing right here this morning. The pulpit ministry is the focus of the church because this is our responsibility to teach God's Word. Now what the pastor does, the pastor disciples you. And that word disciple also comes with it the meaning of discipline. The pastor disciples you so that you may know how to behave yourself in the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, just in passing, I want to make mention of this, that uh, the King James Version, uh, regarding Ephesians chapter 4 and the verses that we've just read, the King James Version and modern versions differ on verses 11 and 12. The King James Version places emphasis on the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers as doing the ministry. Whereas the modern versions place the emphasis on those that these people teach to do the work of the ministry. Those that are discipled. Now I think that the former is indicated rather than the latter. So I think the King James is right about this. And you may not recognize this unless you read a newer version, but the change of meaning hinges on the placement of one comma in that text. 
And that'll just give you a little bit of an idea how important it is for you have to have the right version of the Bible when you're sitting in the church and listening to it. A change of a comma can change the meaning of a text. So the King James is right about that. Well, secondly, what is the work of the church? Well, secondly, it's the ordinances. The work of the church is to administer Christ's ordinances, and no one has the right but the church to do that. You can't get them in any other place. Now, God has given the church two ordinances. We discussed those in lessons six and seven of this series, if you want to go back and learn more about it, if you haven't heard it. The first of these ordinances is baptism. The initial rite of the Christian faith is baptism. And that's administered after a person has believed in Christ. Now let me say first that baptism is important. It shouldn't be delayed. I know there are times of extenuating circumstances, but unless there is some providential hindrance, which by definition would be extremely few, baptism should be as soon as possible upon profession of faith. Baptism is a command. Not to be baptized is disobedience to God's command. Now, we're identified with Christ in baptism. Now, there are some people who believe that, well, I walked the church aisle, and I told the preacher, and I shook his hand, and I said, I'm saved, and that identifies me with Christ. Well, you can walk a hundred church aisles. That's not the Bible's way of identifying people with Christ. The way that we are identified with him is through our baptism. That's our identification. I was talking to one of the young people that I baptized recently, and we were in my office, and as I always do, I'm discussing the issue of baptism with them. What does baptism mean? What is it? And I asked this young person, what is the purpose of baptism? And like that, shot right back at me was this answer. Baptism is our identification with Christ. That's a young person. And that was the shortest interview I ever had with a, with a young person about, about baptism, about becoming a member of the church. Now, that, that shows you the value of raising your children in a Christian home, bringing them to church and helping them to understand what the Word of God says. We thank God for godly parents. I thank God for people like Tabor Gerald and our other teachers that are over there teaching our young people about these things because when they come to the age that they understand Christ as Savior, right along with that, they've got this picture of what baptism represents and they understand that as well. Now, always in the history of the Baptist church, the church of the living God, by the way, we're taught that Christian baptism is the way that we show that Christ that we believe that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried to take our sins away from us, and that he arose for our justification. Baptism is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, in a nutshell. It is the demonstration of the gospel. And the authority for baptism belongs to no one but the church. Jesus commissioned the church in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Now let me explain something to you here. Jesus was not in this passage speaking to individuals. He wasn't even talking to the disciples as individuals. He was speaking to the church. And that's evident by 
its perpetual existence when he says in the last part, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Baptism continues because Christ has entrusted the church with it. Now, what is the promise that he gave the church? And if you come on Sunday nights, you ought to know this, that he promised the church perpetuity. Matthew 16, 18 is all about the perpetuity of the church. And baptism itself survives because there is a perpetually existing church. So you don't think that you can get baptism anywhere else. Your neighbor can't baptize you. And some other organization out there cannot baptize you. It comes from the church of the living God. And if you're to be obedient to Christ, you must be baptized. And then when you're baptized, you're brought into the church. Or you have to be brought to the church for its administration. And then let me also add that we stand by this baptistic principle, that baptism is the entrance into the church. It's the initiatory rite that grants you admission into all the privileges of church membership. So we never baptize anyone who doesn't want to become a member of the church. Why? Because we don't want to baptize disobedient Christians. Now secondly, the second ordinance is the Lord's Supper. Some people are confused about how can it, who can administer baptism... But almost universally, it's agreed, we understand this, who can administer the communion? Now, sometimes people are confused about the venue of the communion, but not the administration of it, because we we do understand that's the church's responsibility. Now, the reason that we get confused about the venue, that is the place where it's to be taken, is because of this universal, invisible church theory where you have this mystical body, And so that means, well, there is no particular place for us to meet. We're a mystical body, and so we can do this anywhere. No, you have to be in the assembly of the church, of the Lord's church. But we really don't have as much trouble with people understanding that the church is the place that we receive the communion. And I don't think that there's anybody here today that's going to go to Applebee's this afternoon and look at your menu and complain to your waitress, I don't see the Lord's Supper on your menu. I came here to take the Lord's Supper. Well, they're happy to serve you supper, but they don't serve the Lord's Supper. That's done in the church. And people do understand that. But, you know, we, sometimes we have people that will stop by the church on a communion night that we don't know. And they come and they say, well, we want to have the supper with you. They tell me we're here for the Lord's Supper. Well, let, let, me, let me just point something out to you and, and pay close attention. If the church has the right of administration and the church is the Lord's assembly, isn't it reasonable that only the members of the church participate? How can someone say, well, I don't want to be a member of the church, but I sure do like to take communion. How do those things match? It doesn't match. Acts chapter 2 shows us that faith in Christ is required. It shows us that baptism is required. It shows us that entrance into the church is required. And you find those steps right in order in Acts 2, verses 40 through 42. And so, since this is not a mystical body, you haven't met the requirements for the supper until you've gone through these steps. Faith in Jesus Christ, baptism, and entrance into the Lord's church. Then you're qualified to take the Lord's Supper. But then on the other hand, you have some Christians who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I think that I will skip the Supper. 
And you don't have that right either. You don't have that option because Christ commanded the communion as much as he did baptism. So Christians must take the supper to be obedient. And they must make sure that they meet the requirements that they are scripturally enabled. Now, now let me point out something to you here. Do you see what the Lord is doing through all of this? In, in all of these things, he's, he's drawing us towards his church. The teaching is there. He's drawing us there for teaching. The ordinances are there. The baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're there. So the Lord is continually drawing us to his church because it's central. It's central to Christianity. You cannot obey Christ and be outside of his church. Now thirdly, and this sermon is going to take a little longer. I hope you're not too hungry. Thirdly is evangelism. Evangelism. The work of the church is evangelism. And I've heard, I know you've heard it preached that evangelism is everybody's responsibility. And I agree with that statement. I believe the Bible teaches that. But I would also hasten to add this. That the scriptures do not entertain that there would be any Christians who are outside of the Lord's church. Non-affiliated Christians are not entertained in New Testament scripture. And you understand that? The, the New Testament promotes the church. So you don't see Paul and the other apostles and authors of the, uh, other authors of the New Testament dealing with some kind of a second tier Christian. Paul is always dealing with the church. When he and Barnabas were sent out as the first missionaries, they were sent out of the church at Antioch. And every place that Paul went, he started churches. So you never found anybody who is a pastor, nobody who is a teacher, nobody who is an evangelist who doesn't have an affiliation with the Lord's church. There's nothing outside of the church but lost people. And that's why it's so strange that you have people who claim Christianity and yet they're not members of a New Testament church. That is not New Testament Christianity. And so it's not hard for me to make the statement that evangelism is strictly in the purview of the church. That it's not for individuals to do outside of the Lord's church. Now what I'm going to say next may grate on some of you a little bit. Some of you might not like this. But parachurch organizations do not have the authority to do the Lord's work. Now take for instance uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. Now this might shock you a little bit. But they don't have the authority to evangelize. Now if they were under the authority of a New Testament church, I'll reconsider that statement if they were. But let me tell you what happens when... When someone takes the authority to evangelize and it's not supported by the pillar and ground of the truth. For years, Campus Crusade for Christ has promoted a deficient wrong gospel with their track for spiritual laws. Now let me, let me quote to you from John MacArthur and I love this quote. This is good for us. It seems many evangelicals are obsessed with finding out how little of God's truth a person can believe and still get to heaven. Many of the modern popular approaches to evangelism have been shaped accordingly. They want a capsulized plan of salvation where the message is distilled in four or five basic points or fewer if possible. Modern evangelicalism is frankly too prone to this kind of gospel reductionism. 
The lineup in one church's track rack included all these titles. Six steps to peace with God. Five things God wants you to know. Four spiritual laws. Three truths you can't live without. Two issues you must settle. And one way to heaven. No single formula can possibly meet the needs of every unregenerate person anyway. Those who are ignorant need to be told who Christ is and why he offers the only hope of salvation, Romans 10.3. Those who are careless need to be confronted with the reality of impending judgment, John 16.11. Those who sat fearful need to, fear, need to hear that, that God is merciful, delighting not in the death of the wicked, but pleading with sinners to come to him for mercy, Ezekiel 33.11. Those who are hostile need to be shown the futility of opposing the will of God, Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Those who are self-righteous need to have their sin exposed by the demands of God's law. Romans 3, 20. Those who are proud need to hear that God hates pride. 1 Peter 5, 5. All sinners must understand that God is holy and that Christ has met the demands of God's perfect righteousness on behalf of sinners. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. Every gospel presentation should include an explanation of Christ's sacrificial death for sin. 1 Corinthians 15.3 And the message is not the gospel if it does not also recount his burial and the triumph of his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.4 and 17. Four spiritual laws hardly, folks. Now this is what happens when evangelism is stripped of its foundation, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Eventually what's going to happen is what truth these organizations have is going to fade away into these different kinds of errors. That's because only the church is the pillar and the ground. And so logically, if we're going to follow the Lord's command to evangelize, it has to be done through the New Testament church. The commission was given to the church and only to the church. So we have teaching and we have ordinances and we have evangelism. All that's entrusted to the church, and without membership, you don't have the privileges of all these things. And once again, let me repeat that the church knows, or the New Testament rather, knows nothing of Christians that are outside of the church. It's just not there. Now, now finally, and I'm trying to hurry, let me give you six concluding statements about the necessity of church membership. Why do you need it? Summary of reasons for church membership. These will go a little bit quickly. Number one is identification. Church membership identifies us with God's people. Now again, we're summarizing, so let me repeat. A, per a person, a Christian outside of the church is alien to the New Testament. The entire direction of the church, or the New Testament, is the church. The Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles, that's all about being identified with what the New Testament calls the body of Christ. And the New Testament knows of no other body of Christ but the church. In Galatians 3.27, Paul wrote, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, baptism comes at the hand of the church, and so to be identified with Christ, you must be baptized. Baptism is not your salvation, it is your identification, and you can't make it happen without the church. Secondly, you need the church for personal growth. Now, I want you to think of a Christian that you know that's not a part of a church. 
or a Christian that doesn't regularly attend church. You look at their life and what do you see? Do you see growth? Do you see a person that is following the Lord and doing what God wants him to do? Christians don't grow well in isolation. Maturing in the faith comes from common service together as God's people, worshiping together as God's people. And it's reasonable that if Paul says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, that not much is going to be learned when you separate yourself from the place where truth is taught. Thirdly, why do you need the church? For a sense of belonging. When you become a member of the church as opposed to attending church, what do you get? You get the sense of being a part of something. You're not an outsider. This becomes your church. This is our church. And now you're qualified for the ordinances. You're qualified to work in the church. Now let me tell you something. Some of you aren't members of Berean Baptist. And, and, I, and, and what I'm telling you today is I, want to make, I, do, I do want to make everybody feel welcome in our church. You are welcome to come and worship with us. But there's only so far that we can go. A person who's not a member of the church can't participate in those ordinances. A person who's not a member of the church can't take a job in ministry in the church. I mean, that only makes sense, doesn't it? We, we, we need to be members of the church, what God commands us to do, in order to have a part of teaching other people. So we welcome everybody, but there's really a sense of belonging that comes when you are a member of the church. It's your place and our place. Then fourthly, you need to be a member of the church because of commitment to Christ. Now, if I, if I meet anyone in any place and they say to me, I am a committed Christian, then the first thing that I always say is, great. I love to meet other committed Christians. You know my next question? What church are you a member of? That's a program response for me. You're a committed Christian? What church are you a member of? Well... Commitment to Christ means commitment to his church because he loved it and gave himself for it. So if you say that you're a committed Christian, but you don't have church membership, what did you commit to? Christ committed his life to his church, didn't he? Ephesians 5.25 says he loved the church and gave himself for it. And so how can you love Christ and not be committed to what he was committed to? So Christians that are outside of the church are non-committed. That's why they're outside. Is that too hard to understand? They're outside because they haven't committed. Now, I, I want to be easy on you a little bit. First of all, I'll say that if you tell me you're a committed Christian, but you're not a member of a church, then, then I'm not going to believe you. Now, you might convince somebody else that, but I, I know too much about the Bible to believe that that's true because I know what Christ has commanded but I'm going to let you off the hook today, and I'm going to say all of you are in the process of being committed to the church, to some church, hopefully this one, to a right church. You're in the process, and we'll leave it right there. You are becoming a committed Christian. Fifthly, why do you need the church? Acceptance of responsibility. Now, let's turn to Ephesians 5.25, or 5.22, rather. Uh, I gave you just a little piece of this scripture a moment ago, but I want you to see more of it. Here is a really good example about accepting responsibility. Ephesians 5.22, which I'm not sure in your Bible might have been marked out. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. 
just kind of peel back your layers there a little bit that you scratch that out and that's what it says. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, sometimes I struggle with that scripture. <laughs> I don't tell you which part, but I, but I struggle with that scripture. <laughs> is Paul using marriage as an emblem of the church? Or is he using the church as an emblem of marriage? And my answer to that question is yes. And that's the way that I like to answer all questions that I can answer. Yes, take both sides and be right. That's always good. But marriage requires acceptance of responsibility. I know people that got married late in life, and so this might not so much apply to them. But when my wife and I were married, we were both very young. And I was my parents' responsibility up to that time. And then I got married, and then I was loaded with responsibility. I had to buy the food. I had to pay for a place to live. I had to pay the utility bills. I would starve and my wife would starve if I didn't take that responsibility. And if I hadn't got a better deal by getting my wife, I'd have stayed at home, let my parents take care of me. But then I got more responsibility. I became accountable to my wife. I mean, I, she expects something from me, and I can't just go off and do things on my own and not consider her. I tried, and I have a scar over my left eye that <laughs> proves that. But you know what an immature Christian is? It's a Christian who's outside of the church and does not accept responsibility. There is no singleness in Christ's plan. We're part of something. We are married to Christ. Second Corinthians 11 verse 2 says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now you might not like this next part, but when you become a member of the church, you become a part of Christ's body, and you signed on to help pay the electric bill. And you signed on to support the missionaries. And you signed on to pay the preacher. Thank you very much. That's your responsibility. You, paid on, you signed on to pay the building mortgage. That's your responsibility. And why shouldn't you? You're part of the family, aren't you? Isn't that what we expect from our family? That we take care of things? That we pay the bills? Of course we do. So, if you're a part of the family it might be time for you to ante up and take your responsibility. Now, let, let me say this. Um, what do we call a family member who's all take and no give? Well, if you're nice, you call them a freeloader. If you're not so nice, you call them a deadbeat. And, and you see, I haven't taken Dale Carnegie's course yet, how to win friends and influence people. I'm sorry about that. Number six, and we're going to be done. Number six, effectiveness. Effectiveness. Why did Christ not give his commission just to individuals? Because as individuals, they would not be very effective. You know, it's like sending a, 
a soldier out to fight an army. One soldier. Now, he might be good. He might be a Navy SEAL. He might be well-trained or an Army Ranger or something like that. But by himself, he's not going to be very effective. You know, I'm impressed with Alex back there, being the Marines and all that he's gone through. Now, being, being, being a father of two Navy personnel, it's hard to say anything about the Marines that would be good. But I, <laughs> I respect Alex for what he's been through. But Alex, out there by himself is not going to be very effective against the enemy. It takes all of our armed forces, doesn't it? Now, sometimes when we consider what we're going to give the missionaries, we'll say, well, how, how much does this amount of money that we're going to give impact their ministry? And that makes a difference depending on where they are. If they're in the Philippines or in Africa, then a little bit of money can go a long way. Well, let's consider this. How much effect does your tithe have on this church. Well, if it's just you alone, not very much. We'll have to close the doors. But when it's all of God's people together taking their responsibility, we have a building that we can meet in. We have missionaries that we support. We have a whole ministry that goes on. And we're effective when we come together and support God's work. And then the church is also a blending of talents. God gifts the church with many different abilities. If you're not here, the effectiveness of the church suffers and you don't gain any effectiveness when you're not here. So friends, the Lord has given us a church. He's preserved his church for 2,000 years and he has done that. He was so, he was so concerned about about preserving the church that it's gone through thick and thin, it's gone through persecution, it's gone through everything that you can imagine in these past 2,000 years and Christ preserved it because it is the central focal point of Christianity, of all that we do in the world. It is God's church. You can't afford to be without God's church. You can't ignore it. One last thought. Well, This is the end, really. This is the end. You may forget everything else that I've said today. You may be so anxious that you want to go home or get to your dinner, whatever it is, see the football game, I don't know. Don't forget this. I could have 125 more reasons to give you why you should be a member of the church, but there's only one that really counts right now. Christ said do it. It's his command. It's his body. It's his church. The church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You need one reason to be a member of the church if you don't know any of the others. Christ said do it. And if you're going to serve him, you must be a part of his church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we so thank you for your church. We thank you, Lord, for this body where we can come together, we can meet together and fellowship together, find strength in one another, and then to carry out the responsibilities that you've given us to reach this world for you. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here today who hasn't made a commitment to the church, first of all, that they understand salvation, but then they understand that the next thing that a Christian needs to do is to be obedient to all the Lord commands, our baptism, partaking of the ordinances, evangelism, all of these things are responsibilities 
of a person who knows you. Help us not to reject that responsibility. Speak to hearts today, Lord. Those who are members, draw them closer to you. Help them to appreciate how important that the work of the church is. And those who aren't members, Lord, help them think seriously about what they're going to do with their lives as they serve you. Thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.